Welcome to Talk Lex, a podcast dedicated to common sense discussion of legal issues facing everyday people. Brought to you by Derazio Peterson. For more information, visit Deraziopeterson.com. Welcome to another episode of Talk Lex. I'm Scott Peterson. Uh, Javon is here with me today. Uh, today's a hard episode. Um, some of the episodes are lighter. Uh, some of them are more technical. This is neither, uh, but it's an important conversation. And you know, as lawyers, we we are in somewhat of a unique position to look at these issues uh, and to you know uh, take action wherever possible. So today we're talking about gun violence. Um, and, you know, in particular, the recent spate of shootings, um, our listeners know we have a couple of young kids. We've had very hard conversations with them over the last few weeks. Uh, they are in schools where security has increased. They are now worrying about whether the doors are locked out back. They have to do drills. Um, and they talk about these shooter preparedness drills. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's unbelievably frustrating as a parent um, because, you know, at least in my opinion, it's it's much more preventable than where we are right now. Uh, and no one seems to want to, I shouldn't even say want to, seems to be able to do anything about it. And the infuriating part is that I have many friends who are on both sides of the aisle politically, often who are opposed to where I am. And the one thing we all agree on is that there need to be stricter gun laws. Assault weapons really have no place in this society for the average person, in particular, an 18-year-old kid. Um, and so, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, and that's kind of where we are. So let's start a little bit talking about, you know, the Second Amendment, right? Uh, constitutional law is one of the first classes you take in law school. So what do you think about that? Well, I just, you know, I just want to say also this Uvalde shooting, I mean, I really can't get it out of my mind. I think it's just so incredibly, incredibly sad and I can't stop thinking about it. Um, I I can't read too much. I, you know, I've read enough about it to be informed, but I find myself having to literally shake the news articles out of my head once I start reading them because it's just too horrific. Um, I think this one has really our kids. This is the first time I think our kids are old enough to really be aware of it. Um, you know, in New York state, we're in New York state, um, literally 10 days before this, we had a shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo. Um, so it's very hard at this point to tell your kids, um, that this doesn't happen often because they're aware of the fact that it does happen pretty often, way too often. Um, a lot of the questions that they ask, I found myself not being able to answer them truthfully. Um, and these are kids who we really haven't had that many of these conversations with them. So we have not, you know, influenced, I don't think their sort of quote unquote political beliefs or something like that. They're just kind of asking common sense questions like, mom, but that can't happen here because teenagers aren't allowed to have those kinds of guns in New York. Right. And I was like, well, I, I didn't even know what to say because yes, they can until, until this week, because we, we did pass a little bit of gun safety legislation in New York this week. Um, but it, it's just been really sad. And I, I have found myself sort of very down. And every time I question, why do I feel this way? I, it goes back to, I kind of remind myself, oh, it's because of that. Um, 
But anyway, you know, turning to kind of the Second Amendment issue, which is obviously, you know, kind of a cloud over this entire discussion, because I think a lot of people, you know, sort of fall back on, you know, do we just kind of have this blank to or this this blanket right um, to basically, you know, whatever we want. Um, and I don't think that's true. Um, and, and I shouldn't say I personally don't think that's true. I, I think, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't think that's true. Um, so I just wanted to read a little bit kind of before we get started, just to sort of acknowledge as we go into this conversation that, um, you know, as Scott said, I think we have sort of a personal belief that um, addressing the assault weapons or semi-automatic weapons or AR-15s or military-style weapons or whatever you want to call them, because I know that, you know, there's some debate as to the proper terminology to these things. Um, you know, when we say that those should be taken out of the equation, um, there is room for that in Supreme Court uh, precedent on the Second Amendment. So I'm reading here from, so so the big Supreme Court case on the Second Amendment in modern times is called Heller. And the decision was written by Justice Scalia. And it's only from 2008. Um, and 2008 is the first time the Supreme Court said that there is a civilian right to bear arms encompassed in the Second Amendment. So this is not something that had been recognized, at least by the Supreme Court officially, until 2008. So here he says, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. The right is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. Nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possessions of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. And he also goes on to acknowledge weapons that are most useful in military service, M16 rifles and the like, may be banned. So that's that's Justice Scalia talking, not not us. So there's precedent for it, and there's there's an opening for an assault weapons ban that just isn't going to happen. And the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals back in 2017, um, the Circuit Courts of Appeals are, you know, the federal um, appeals courts that their decisions are the decisions that eventually go to the Supreme Court. And the Fourth Circuit is the court that has actually made an explicit decision on assault weapons and high capacity magazines. And they said they are not protected by the Second Amendment. And California, which is the Ninth Circuit, has also upheld a ban on high capacity magazines and purchasing, uh, you know, more than 10 rounds at once. So if you're looking at this from a purely constitutional law, what is the state of the law of the Second Amendment at this moment in time, 2022, there is certainly room for a very good argument to be made that military style weapons can be banned without running afoul of the second amendment. So I think that's important to acknowledge. Can someone argue the other side? Is a very uh, good legal scholar for a gun rights group going to argue the other side of this? Yes, 
But this is the law, you know, as it stands right now, written by a conservative majority of the court back in 2008. so th- I think, you know, we just want to kind of acknowledge that sort of at the at the outset. All right. So we both agree. Well, I mean, obviously we agree that we think there's, you know, I, I don't I don't personally think that anyone should own should have the need to own a high capacity assault rifle. But if there were going to be permissive use of those weapons, I think it's not unreasonable to say that there should be an age restriction beyond 18, right? Um, that's not going to happen. Um, if, you know, there's a couple of great quotes floating out there about, you know, after Newtown essentially saying, you know, once, once we decided that we were okay with kids dying and not implementing serious gun reform, the conversation ended. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, Chris Murphy and the, the bipartisan group can do something, but they're not going to ban assault weapons. It's just not going to happen. So at least now, hopefully things change. Um, but what, what, what can we do? What are the options legally if assault weapons can't be banned? Well, I mean, we have, you know, there, there's, the assault weapons, what's, what's sort of interesting is I think that right now an assault weapon ban has sort of gained potentially the most um, momentum that it has had. Um, even, you know, some really significant gun safety groups like Everytown, you know, they never really advocated for an assault weapon ban because they didn't think they would ever be able to get that through. So, you know, other things that we look at are background checks. That seems to be a very non-controversial issue that we still, for some reason, have not been able to make headway on. Um, You know, the mental health question about expanding access to services, I think, is another sort of non-controversial issue in the abstract. But I actually think that is a really complicated issue um, and certainly one that will take, I think, more time to hash out and potentially be almost more vulnerable to a Second Amendment challenge because, you know, how do we decide what a quote unquote mental health condition is that means you don't get to have a gun? I guarantee you there the reason why stuff like that has not gone through is because who has mental health issues? Literally, probably almost everyone. Especially uh, now. Veterans with PTSD, law enforcement with PTSD. Are we going to say if you get mental health treatment for PTSD, you're not allowed to have a gun? I mean, I don't think most people will be would be comfortable with that. And I think it's just very sort of dicey question, Um, even though we can all agree that that's certainly an issue um, and we need to, you know, identify who's at risk, you know, very early on in life, if we can, in schools and get people treatment. Um, But I think that that's a more difficult question that, you know, certainly should be addressed. But I think when we think about, okay, well, what's something that we can do sort of immediately? Well, we can take certain types of guns out of the equation then we can deal with the mental health issues. Yeah, let me say, I maybe I was a bit dismissive of the prospect of an assault weapons ban. I just don't have a whole lot of faith in Congress and 
I, I hope that these groups are right and I hope there's movement. There's obviously been um, more public engagement after this shooting than you've seen in some time. And you hope it sticks because I think the other side of this, the people who are adamantly opposed to it are hoping that, you know, like in the past, the conversation will continue and then something else will happen and it'll fade away. And so the hope is that that doesn't happen here. Um, the mental health piece is an interesting one because we represent quite a few people in employment discrimination cases who have, quote unquote, mental health issues, uh, whether it's, as Giovanna said, PTSD, severe depression, anxiety, uh, a number of different things, bipolar disorder, uh, a number of different things things that lead to or are the the cause of a termination often illegally so our perspective on this is uh, you know we've we see this in practice and there's there's a definite stigma associated with it and so to hear people say well it's a mental health issue that's not fair uh and it as Giovanna pointed out it unreasonably puts a target on a certain demographic of people which is a very large one that is probably not accurate or fair to them. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that I think about because I think, you know, number one, you know, mental health uh, condition does not equal violent. Um, so I think there is certainly a stigma that is perpetuated where we have this idea that, you know, anybody with kind of mental health conditions might be, you know, at risk for, you know, perpetrating a mass shooting or something like that. Um, you know, not to be a hater of men, I have a lot of wonderful men in my life, but there's a lot of women with mental health conditions who get mental health treatment or, you know, or who do not get mental health treatment who are not perpetrating these shootings. Um, so I have a little bit of an issue with, you know, is being angry and hateful and violent a mental health condition? I don't know. I, sometimes I think probably not. Um, you know, if somebody went in and did these things with a bomb instead of a gun, I don't think people would be wondering if it was a mental health condition. I think the mental health issue is brought up as sort of a knee jerk defense of guns. Um, you know, so I, I think the mental health thing is a very is a very tough question. I mean, I think we all agree that that needs to be addressed and we should have more access to resources. Um, I think sometimes that's kind of like a, a first world luxury. It's very hard to get access sometimes to mental health resources and sometimes they're very expensive. Um, but but uh, but I, I don't say any of those things in, in like a this is too difficult to deal with sort of situation. I think absolutely that is part of the um, conversation and certainly something that we need to address. But I, I don't think that that is going to be the most expedient um, way to combat this problem. Yeah, well, it's similar to the conversations that I hear about, well, it could be video games or we have to monitor social media or, you know, chat rooms where these kids are, are, are discussing this. All of that's true. Uh, those are all potentially legitimate concerns. Um, I, I differ a bit about, you know, how relevant video games are to any of this, but we'll talk about that in a second. But um, I think 
those are those are great solutions and they should be focused on but it seems to me that the very easy short-term solution is make it harder to get these kinds of weapons because they are almost universally used by young men who probably shouldn't have access to them i mean this kid bought these guns on his 18th birthday that is inconceivable that that's okay um and and what you know begs the question of what are the what are the other reasons to buy a gun like this when you're that young what are you what are you possibly going to use this for so you know we can rant on that forever but um you know we talk we talk we deal in civil liability so then the question becomes well obviously you can't or not obviously it's obvious to us you can't sue a gun manufacturer right now for the simple fact that they manufactured these guns but what comp what what lawyers have started to look at and what was successful in Connecticut is suing a gun manufacturer for their marketing practices. Who are they targeting? How are they targeting them? Um, and you want to talk briefly about, uh, you know, what, what the lawyer from Connecticut is doing in Uvalde following the shooting there? Yeah. So there's a federal law, um, called the protection of lawful commerce and arms act that basically in a nutshell makes it so that you can't sue gun manufacturers and dealers for shootings. Um, there are some limited exceptions, but, um, it's a pretty broad grant of immunity. So what attorneys have started to do is use state laws that are directed towards marketing or in New York state, we actually have a law that was just upheld um, about, you know, when or when is the gun industry con contributing to something called a public nuisance or that, you know, affects the public health and safety. Um, you know, we're starting to use these other types of laws as a way to target uh, gun manufacturers and dealers who, you know, are selling their their products kind of recklessly, which is something that we can do, you know, basically from a product liability perspective in, in sort of any other industry. Um, so that's something that was used successfully in Connecticut after the Sandy Hook shooting. Most of the claims were dismissed because of this PLCAA, but the reckless marketing claim survived and ultimately the case was settled for $73 million. Um, so it, it's being reported now that one of the parents whose children was killed in the Uvalde shooting has hired these same lawyers and is looking to see, you know, what are the marketing materials that are used um, in connection with the gun that was used in that shooting. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's important, an important tool kind of in this, um, you know, fight against this gun violence, because say, you know, we don't ban assault weapons, we, we just can't do that, we can't get that through, there's, it's too controversial, fine. So we have them, but how can we make them be sold in a safer way? You know, the age restrictions that Scott mentioned would be one way to do that. Another way would be to regulate how they are marketed. Maybe we don't put these guns in video games. You know, they're too realistic. You know, they're not appropriate to be used even in that context, maybe by children. Um, so I think there's ways that we can use civil liability um, and lawsuits to get that information because otherwise, you know, you have absolutely no legal right to go to a private company and say, hey, show me your marketing materials. But if you sue them, um, that's how you get that. And I think as as plaintiff's lawyers, that's one of the 
values that we see, um, you know, in the civil justice system as a way to get information you would not ordinarily be able, you know, to get. Yeah, 100 um, percent. That's that's the only way to approach it, I think. Um, and, you know, it obviously the questions about marketing for this company, beg, you know, are, are obvious. Why are they if they are marketing to kids in video games, what are they trying to achieve with that? What are they hoping the kids will do with assault weapons when they buy them? Go hunting? It doesn't seem logical after you're marketing to them in the context of a game where they're killing each other. Um, and th- look, I'm I'm not opposed to video games. Uh, our kids play them. Uh, I played them. I, I have no problem with it. I don't think that violent video games translate to violence. I think I think there are many many other factors that go into it. I think it's an easy excuse to say that that's the big problem. So someone might say, well. You, you don't sue a car manufacturer when a drunk driver kills somebody. So isn't that a fair parallel between uh, with, with these types of cases? Isn't that, isn't that a reasonable comparison? Um, I, I don't think so, because that's not really necessarily a fair analogy. So when we say, you know, we don't sue car manufacturers or what about, you know, we don't sue knife manufacturers if you stab somebody Um, I I think as a first point to that, cars and knives and lots of other inanimate objects have a purpose outside of killing people. The only purpose of an assault weapon or a semi-automatic weapon or whatever you want to call it is to kill as many people as possible as fast as possible. That is the purpose of it. It is being used for its intended purpose when there is a mass shooting. That is why it is totally unique as compared to any other industry. Um, The other piece of it is that we actually sue people for the actions of other people all the time. So we might not sue a car manufacturer when there's a drunk driver, but we might sue a bar we might sue the person who gave you alcohol when you had no business having it and then you went and killed somebody. So I think the the more relevant analogy is we would sue a gun manufacturer because the gun manufacturer has given a military style weapon to somebody who has no business having it just like the bartender gave you a drink when you were done and then you went and killed somebody. Um, so I think, you know, those are kind of, in, in my humble opinion, the sort of responses to those types of analogies. It's not really a good analogy because of sort of the unique nature of the gun, as well as the fact that, you know, again, we sue people for the actions of other people all the time. You know, you own property and you've got somebody dangerous on your property or you've got somebody dangerous in your employment and you knew about it and all these red flags went up and you did nothing and that person goes and kills somebody, you can be liable for that. Um, so I, I think when, you know, we talk about the immunity from lawsuits, we, we have to recognize that that's pretty unique. You know, you own a business the gun manufacturer has more immunity from liability than you do. I don't think that's fair. No, that's not fair. What about parents? You know, if you're if you're the the parent, and I, you know, not to belabor this, but you have kids, and it's like it's these are sort of inconceivable conversations to have to have or thoughts to to have it. But you're a parent, and you're you're now on the other side of this, and you're looking for some something. 
and you want you know you feel that somebody has to be held ac- accountable what about the parents of the shooters yeah i mean that's that's something that you can do so in in new york state the the theory is called negligent entrustment of a dangerous instrument so if you you know leave your guns unattended in addition to their being um or excuse me unsecured in addition to maybe having some criminal liability for something like that you know you can be sued um on on that type of negligence theory if if your child or somebody accesses your guns and then use them to kill someone Um, you know, there was a school shooting in Michigan. Um, you know, at this point, I think just a side note to that is we've had so many of these that it's hard to keep them straight, but there was one in Michigan where the parents were actually arrested and charged with manslaughter because they bought the son for their, uh, the gun for their son. Um, and then they left it unsecured and they also ignored a lot of red flags, um so that that was pretty unique actually not the shooting itself that's all too common but the parents actually uh being arrested um was pretty is pretty unique um so you know there's there's a lot of different types of people other than you know we we touched on property owners before that you know you can sort of use the civil justice system as a way to try to make things a little bit um safer uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, the only person who's responsible is the shooter. Um, I don't agree that that's the only person who's responsible. Certainly they are responsible. Um, you know, but if you go and murder, uh, you know, 15, um, you know, even even putting aside children, but say you, you go out there and murder 15 able-bodied working men who are supporting their families, do you think one 18-year-old kid is going to have enough insurance to pay every single one of those families uh, $10 million for the money that their husband would have earned for the rest of his life? No, he doesn't have that. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's not an irrelevant, you know, piece of this. Okay. And then finally, I think one of the questions that's come up, and you wrote an article about this, um, there's been a lot of conversation uh, about the police response in the Uvalde case in particular, um, about whether it was delayed, whether they didn't go into the room when they should have. Um, and it's it's heartbreaking and I'm sure very hard to live with. Um, but the question inevitably is, well, can the police be held responsible when they fail to respond appropriately in a case like this? Now, quick aside, one of the justifications that was given by the police department for the reason why they didn't respond was because the shooter had the weapons and tactical gear that he had, which was more than they had. Um, that to me seems like a serious problem if we think it's okay to allow people to buy more sophisticated equipment than the police have. But that's kind of a conversation for another day. The question is, is there is there liability on the part of the police if they fail to act in a situation like this? Um, well, I just want to add a little something to that, which is just to highlight that that happened in Buffalo as well, where the security guard um, actually, you know, bravely uh, confronted the shooter, but, you know, again, was outgunned and actually shot him, but he was wearing body armor. Um, so, you know, I, I agree that it's a problem. Um, and honestly, you know, in this country, we like to talk a lot about supporting law enforcement as we should. Um, to me, a, a crucial element of supporting law enforcement is why do they need to go up against people who 
are, you know, better armed than they are. Um, and that certainly goes for, you know, a school resource officer or anybody like that. Um, and, and I am actually fine with having armed security at schools. I know that can sometimes be controversial. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with that as long as those people are sort of trained up to, you know, contemporary standards. Um, but I, I don't necessarily put a ton of uh, faith, not in their bravery, but in their just ability to go up against somebody who is armed like that, um, nor should they have to. Um, but, you know, going back to whether there is any liability for failing to act in these situations, um, you know, the, the short answer to that is usually no, there is not. Um, the Supreme Court doesn't recognize a constitutional right to be, you know, sort of have your life saved by law enforcement. Um, in New York State, the only time you can hold, you know, law enforcement responsible for failing to act is when there's what we call a special relationship, which basically means that you have to have direct contact with law enforcement. They have to pretty much assure you of their protection. You have to rely on that, um, typically to your detriment, and then, you know, they fail to act. Um, so that that is a pretty... Uh, tough um burden to meet in those situations um you know yes you know the reasoning behind this is that law enforcement is faced with difficult decisions all the time and and they don't have to necessarily do their jobs with the threat of being sued for every little thing they do or don't do um but it can be a you know bitter pill to swallow in these sort of more extreme examples of you know just really dropping the ball in kind of the worst way. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's sad. Um, there's not much else to say about that. Uh, the, there was a case out of Arizona in the paper this week where law enforcement uh, confronted a guy in a bridge and he, after a brief conversation, he decided he was going to go for a swim, goes for a swim, they're on the bridge watching him uh, and he starts to tell him that he's drowning. And they said, essentially, we're not coming in to help you. Um, and the guy drowned. Uh, that might be closer to what is envisioned uh, in terms of taking on this special relationship, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think when you have that more kind of direct contact, there's probably, you know, a better argument to be made there. And, and I'm sure that, you know, there's some detail kind of missing from that story, potentially. Um but yeah, I mean, it's it's ultimately it's it's very hard to you know hold kind of law enforcement accountable in these types of situations. Um, you know, it's I think this one is really a very sort of extreme kind of heartbreaking example of it. Um, but again, you know, civil liability plays a role in you know getting the information as to how did this happen. Um, how can we learn from it and how can we stop that from ever happening again? Um, so I, I think that's, you know, another I, I just saw a headline today that said um, that the gymnasts who were sexually abused um, have sued the FBI for like some gigantic amount of money. It was like a billion dollars on like 50 million dollars on behalf of each person. Um, you know, in New York, we, you don't even put dollar amounts in your complaints anymore. You're not really supposed to. Um, sometimes those big numbers are out there as, you know, they grab headlines. 
but I, I sort of did something that I tried not to do, which is I looked at the comment section. Um, and I was, I shouldn't have been surprised, but so many of the comments said, you know, money would never, will never make this right. This is just a money grab. Like, okay, now these girls, you know, now, now they're just trying to get rich off of this or whatever. But it's the lawsuit that is the tool, not necessarily the money. Um, The lawsuit is what's going to tell you, how did this happen? How did, even though people reported this to the FBI, was this person allowed to continue, you know, abusing people for this many years? Um, And I think that's the role, you know, of the lawsuits in these situations, whether it's to see, oh yeah, this company um, purposely markets disturbed angry young men or this uh you know is the law enforcement policy in this you know shooting situation um you know this is how you get that information so that you know hopefully things can be made safer in the future yeah it's hard to understate that i mean and that's you know the the Remington or whomever the gun manufacturer is here isn't going to voluntarily disclose their marketing practices, right? They not not under any circumstances. So how do we find out what they're doing with their marketing? How do we find out if they're targeting kids in the context of violent video games who may have a propensity to this? We have to file lawsuits. That's the way that you get this information. So I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's, it's a tool more than uh, anything else. And I think what people forget is that the vast majority of lawsuits, many of which really uh really do lead to change and to policy making policy decisions uh, and also reveal information well they don't result in massive wins for the for the parties involved for the plaintiffs but there are a lot of times when they're necessary to kind of flush out or flesh out these issues anything else on that all right anything else before we wrap up No, I mean, I just think like everyone else, you know, we are kind of hoping that people can find sort of common ground here because a lot of this, you know, maybe putting aside a full out assault weapon ban, but things like some of the age limits and the background checks and the high capacity magazines. I mean, a lot of these things are not super controversial, Um, you know, and I just hope that, you know, maybe this is finally um, the moment that things can change because especially having kids that are old enough to really understand it, I think makes it a lot worse. I mean, we had school-age kids when Sandy Hook happened, but you didn't actually have to talk to them about it and you didn't actually have to see them being afraid of it. Um, You know, I hope that we can do something on the guns because, you know, I, I having this conversation with, you know, our daughter, you know, she expressed that she actually doesn't feel safer when there's more security at the school, that it's more of a reminder that something bad might happen. Um, you know, I myself might, might not even agree. I might say to her, no, this is, you know, these people are here to make you, make you safe and protect you. Um, you know, I, I think we have to understand that a lot of those other pieces of it, you know, the mental health, the, the school security, a lot of these things, you know, yes, we have to address them, um, but they're a little bit more, difficult um in some ways than just identifying you know we really don't need certain types of guns to be out in the general you know population and and let's take those out of the equation and and also deal with the really hard things yeah but i i may have said this before but 
I have friends on both sides of the aisle politically, and we all seem to agree on this, that there need to be stricter gun laws. Um, so if 90%, if it's true that 90% of the population see this as necessary, then you have to hope that uh, the, the, the politicians involved will do their part and start to make some change. Or, you know, our world, the civil world is the only other option. So um, thanks for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, with hopefully a, a brighter episode. But anything else before we go? Nope. Questions, comments, please feel free to hit us up on social media, Instagram, uh, or contact us at uh, our firm website, DorazioPeterson.com. Thanks again for listening. Have a good week.